so my name is Nancy Fulton, and this is an event on writer's block causes and cures, and it's actually going to touch on all forms of creative blocks. If you were a fine artist, your writer's block would manifest as not being able to do fine art, as opposed to somebody who's an actor who all of a sudden decides he can't get on the stage. You'll find it a very interesting call if you suffer from writer's block or if you have to support or manage people who suffer from creative block, which if you're working in the entertainment industry will sooner or later be everyone. My guest today is uh, Dr. Rebecca Roy, who's built a successful practice helping entertainment industry professionals reach their goals, manage their stress, and deal with the natural ebb and flow of creative careers. She's a licensed clinical psychologist with both a PhD and a master's degree in clinical psychology and has 12 years' experience as a psychotherapist licensed to treat both individuals and couples. She uses evidence-based treatment approaches, which are both solution-focused and long-lasting, which help her patients reach their goals while remaining grounded, sane, and creative. She's a former coach of Olympic athletes and has 20 years of experience helping people reach their goals, including many writers. And she's been featured in the New York Times, LA Times, Reuters, CNN, and on many other major media. So with that, Dr. Roy, would you like to spend a few minutes talking about how you found yourself working with so many creative professionals? Okay, thanks. And welcome to everybody. I'm really excited to work with you today, and I hope that I can be of service um, how did I get to doing this? Well, it's kind of a long, twisted road, <laughs> as most people find in creative work. I started out as an athlete, and I then became a writer, and then I was a director, an actor, and then I worked with Olympic athletes. I came back and worked with the athletes in the sport I was in. And it was always a creative endeavor. It was always finding your way through something. It was finding the through line. It was finding the psychological underpinnings of things. And certainly as a director and an actor, you're always looking at what the psychology is under the character and, and what's driving that character, that scene, that show, whatever. So it was a pretty natural transition, actually, when I became a psychologist. I just uh, love coaching people. I love helping people get to where they want to go. And I, I like to help them get there as quickly as possible with as least amount of drama and problems. Can you talk about some of the causes of writer's block and, and other forms of creative inhibition that you've seen in the past with, with the clients that you've treated? One cause of writer's block is there's something about the work itself that's bringing up a past issue that you didn't know was there or was hiding or it's just the setting that you're in. Another cause can be depression or anxiety. A lot of people in the industry have bipolar disorder, so, you know, they're great when they're on the manic high, but when they're in the depressive low, they have a much more difficult time. Then there's external factors, your life, what's going on in the room, what you're saying to yourself about your writing and about the block itself. How you speak to yourself about your own work and your own block is, a, to me, the defining factor because you can get help for your depression, you can get a help for your anxiety, but at the end of the day, you're still left with your own thought process and your own statements that you make to yourself. Is it the case that the inhibitions come on gradually or as a general rule, or do they just sort of stop people cold in their tracks? I've known people who white-knuckle it on a regular basis. They sort of push themselves to the limit and, and treat themselves in a really kind of mean and brutal way while they're yeah. while they're writing. And then all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, that stops being very functional for them. Yes. And, 
Yes, absolutely. I've had many writers that they, they'll wait to the very last minute because they have the belief that will motivate them or the kind of negative uh, self-talk that they're doing to themselves to kind of gin up a lot of energy or a lot of um, juice to write with. But over time, that method of working with your own psyche is very destructive because it's, it's coming at it from a negative place and it's not supportive of yourself. And so there are, are certainly people who can sustain that over the long haul, but you're much better off learning another way of motivating yourself, another way of creating emotional energy for your work than going from a, a negative perspective because that's when you get into drugs and alcohol and acting out and, and um, it just eventually will wear out. It's kind of a mystical thing. They believe that it's the only way for them to work. If you're especially good at creating and you've been doing it a certain way a long period of time, it, you don't want to break the spell. Is that one of the things that you face when you talk to people about oh, yeah. their creativity? People don't know where creativity comes from. Everybody has their own process. But if, a, if you run into a block, it's just telling you you've got to look at a different way of, of entering your own psyche and maybe treat it differently, speak to it differently, and see if that makes a difference. In the entertainment industry, it's almost a, a joke how many people see therapists. Everybody's got a therapist. But do you think it's the case mm -hmm. that a lot of creative people don't turn to therapy until things have gotten pretty ugly in terms of to, to the point that it's actively um, affecting their ability to get work? Yes. And also, they don't want the therapy to interfere with their creative process. That's usually the biggest fear, is that somehow if they get well or they get some different kind of influence, that their creative process will be less creative. I see that a lot with musicians. Mm -hmm. um, writers seem to be a little bit more open because they have a different process. But yeah, usually they wait till it's really bad before they come in. Um, because what you said is true. They're, they're relying on how they've always worked, and they think they'll just keep pushing through, and somehow that same mechanism will, will come to the fore and give them what they need. That's when we have to do some sort of deep, deeper dives within their own psyche and look at what exactly is it that you're writing about now, and how has your relationship to that theme or issue or character type changed? Or how has your relationship with work changed, you know? Or, or your relationship with work changed, right. Do you think that um, people working in television or people working in film when they've had long runs of success are sort of more impacted by the fact that there, there are these notions of 12-hour days? It's, it's a very strange industry, the entertainment industry. 12 hours a day, set six days a week, sometimes seven like that's mm -hmm. normal, and you wouldn't even writers get impacted by that. You know the rewrites or the or the mm -hmm. um, you know can you turn this draft around you know in a couple of days or whatever. So mm -hmm. do you think that those kinds of pressures make it so people burn out more quickly than they would, uh, and spe more spectacularly than they might being writers in different industries. Like I don't really hear about tech writers. You know, all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you're asked you're asked to be creative. Uh, for many, many hours a day, and the demands are very high, and um, you're still a human being with a psyche and a soul, and you can't just crank it out unless you're just a, a total hack. And it can be very destructive over time if you rely on a negative perspective with regards to that. So it's a, very easy to get burned out.
Is it true to say that creative people really need to create in order to remain mentally healthy? I've seen a lot of people yes. that I wrote, I read their work, especially their work, their, their mm-hmm. first work coming up, and I'm thinking, you're, you're literally, this is a great work because you're doing therapy to yourself in it. Like, <laughs> and if you don't have it, mm-hmm. if you, I, I can see why your wheels would fall off, right? You need this right. to actually survive. So what happens to people who are really creative who can't create? Oh, it's it's terrible. I mean, they're having depression and anxiety. Uh, it's uh, it's very painful to watch, and uh, I've seen people become suicidal. And you know, the creative soul needs expression, and it needs to to say something of importance. And so, having the vehicle to write it down is so powerful and so healing to the psyche when you can do that. But if you don't have the option of be able to be creative, it, and you're right, it's, it can be devastating for people. Is it the case that sometimes the stuff that's the most important to them is the stuff they can't write about? Yes. That's the confluence of the internal factors in the block. That's when the block will come up because you're telling yourself something about that material, whether it's, uh, I can't touch this, it's too much for me, or I'm really no good, why am I even trying to write this? Or, you know, or one that I hear almost always is, they'll find out I'm a fraud and I can't write anything. Or sometimes it'll be, if I tell the truth about this, then people will know the truth about this. You know, yes. when, they're talk, when they're writing sure. about things that have to do with, you know, abuse that they've committed or abuse they've had inflicted upon them. or mm-hmm. When Absolutely. people are writing things that are that, that touch on things that they've actually experienced, then it can trigger this mm-hmm. feeling that I don't want to tell the truth about this. I don't want to talk about where this work comes from because I don't want people to know. Yes, completely naked. Right. And then you you don't know what their their judgment of that is. In the documentation that you uh, sent out, and if you for people that didn't get the documentation, you can send me an email at nancy.fulton at yahoo.com, and after the call I'll make it available to you. You have artwork that actually talks about how schemas determine how we see the world. And I think in, in previous events, I've mm-hmm. talked about George Lakoff talking about frames and that, you yeah. know, if you call something, if you if you say something is a death tax, that's different than calling it um, an inheritance tax because it, just the use of the words reframes what, what the tax is about. So can you talk for a little bit about what schemas are and how they relate mm-hmm. to creative blocks? Schemas are basically an overall core belief that you have about yourself or the world, and it's how you view everything. It's like a prism through which you view things. So anything that happens, we we filter it through our schema, our own schema. So the the example I gave is says, I'm stupid. So if that's someone's schema, then anything that happens, that's going to be your automatic understanding of the event. Oh, I did this wrong. It must be because I'm stupid. Well, it might be because you just didn't prepare well or you had other things going on. If your belief is, I'm not good enough as a writer, I see that all the time, then anytime you reach a block, that's that's unconsciously in the background. You see, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. I shouldn't have done this. I should never have tried. And then, you, you know, people tend to give up. Even though they're fighting the block, they're really fighting their own thought about about their own work. I like this one on the bottom. Schemas are prejudices. They are like a shape with a cutout and only pay attention to the other shapes which fit. Mm -hmm. 
So many writers get stuck in their own schema. And until you make that conscious, it's very hard to get out of that block because it's unconscious at that point. One of the worst experiences that I've watched people go through is for some reason they'll have gotten the idea when they were younger that they were lucky, you know, and maybe to some degree Uh they were lucky. But then all of a sudden they start hitting a point in time where work doesn't come as easy or people aren't responding as favorably to their work and they come up with the notion that they are unlucky. And that's just devastating. I mean, how do you fix luck, right? It might have started as a a certain kind of reality for you at one point, but then it gets applied in a broad brush. That answer that question. I'm not sure I answered that question. I think I think what, if I think you did. If you're what you're saying is that you know if you had the idea that you really understood, even though you're a man, you really understand how to write women, and you've always been comment. Everybody's always told you how mm-hmm. great you are about writing about women. So originally there might have that blanket statement you inherited, and then one day when you start getting negative um, feedback on how well you write for mm-hmm. women characters, you it's like you you feel like you've lost your mojo, you know, and mm-hmm. then you don't want to try to do anything because you don't want to, you feel like you just can't, nothing I do is right because you don't, you, you ha- are trying to apply this blanket. Your scheme has been mm-hmm. broken in that sense. All, all of a sudden you're not lucky anymore. Or you can't write for women anymore, or you, you're not a wonderkind anymore, or whatever the thing is. Yeah. Well, usually it's probably a simpler and deeper kind of thought in that mm-hmm. kind of instance, which is almost always something like, I'm not good enough, mm-hmm. lurking underneath. Mm-hmm. Because if if you were able to write for women before and all of a sudden can't, but your belief has always been that you could write for women, um, you probably have a pretty strong belief in that. It's more that underneath there's some part of you that believes I'm I'm really not good enough in general. I'm an imposter. I should never have gotten this far. I just now got caught. That kind of thinking? Yes, something like that. It's it's usually yeah, deeper. Like they'll figure out that all those times that they told me I could write for women was really just a lie. I was really just hiding. I was really just a fraud. And now it's showing up. Now they're going to see it. That's that's a big one that comes up for blocks Um, and one that's very painful even for the most successful writer because you always feel like you're not enough because you're always striving right is and I think that's kind of brings up the next topic which is is it the case that the fact that you've got this schema, you've got a schema that influences this belief influences your behavior and then when you run into a period where where you run into a creative block and you mm-hmm. feel very uncomfortable and like a, mm-hmm. like a fraud or an imposter, does that not also influence your behavior? It's sort of trying to get into a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Yeah, yeah. And you, you're kind of right about the fact that you feel crushed because what you believe to be true about yourself before is no longer true. Um, and so that's when I go back and I look at what the material is actually, what you're working with at the time that's making you feel so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Because it's both the schema and the material itself. Does that so, make sense? 
Yeah, it does. And so when you're yeah. when you speak about the kind of material, so if somebody is um, writing a, a thing about international crime or internet or politics or something mm-hmm. like that, and mm-hmm. they get handed this project, <clears throat> it's sort of in their wheelhouse or has been in the past. But for for some reason, they just can't write this piece. Is it the case that you one of the things you do is talk to them about that piece and yes. try to figure out what it is that makes this piece different from the other pieces they've had success with? Yes, absolutely. I would ask, is it feel does it feel overwhelming? Is there something in the complexity? Is it that you feel tired of dealing with this particular kind of issue or these kinds of stories or you know, what in your path parallels this story? Is there a theme in the story that that parallels? Is it betrayal or fear or whatever? Because stuff comes up for us from our past all the time and we use it to write with. But then when you feel yourself stuck like that, there is something in that story most likely that there's a reason why you don't want to write it. It's painful on some level and you just don't want to go into it. Sometimes when you have to collaborate with other people and they have a vision for what this project is going to be about and what the characters are going to be about and how it's going to work, especially if I think you're the writer, they're calling upon you to write characters that, with points of view that you may not agree, right. may not understand or may not agree with. Honestly, like I don't want to have any part of that character. I don't want to write that character, mm-hmm. and yet my job requires me to do so. And I don't understand that character, so I can't write that character. So is it... Mm-hmm. Is it the case that you, you that you have to die, that you can help people dive into those kinds of characters so they do understand them well enough to write them, or how do you handle yeah. those kinds of things? Yeah, it's a matter of developing empathy for the character that you dislike that much. And usually we do dislike something a lot because it's either a part of ourselves or it's something we know and we don't want to deal with it. So, um, it's it, yeah, we work on developing empathy for the character, um, what in your own life parallels that character, or who have you known that was similar to this character or this situation, and what are your feelings around that? Because that's what's coming up. You're just not aware of it. All you're having is a reaction like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to deal with this at all. Mm-hmm. And so we we got to look at it a little deeper and sort of unpack it. Is it the case that there are some kinds of work that that literally make people feel sick to work on? Well, one, I can give you kind of a, a, an, a, an example. There was someone I was working with, and he's very, very bright and had gone to an Ivy League school. And his biggest problem was that he would get stuck in his head all the time. He, he couldn't get between his head to his emotions. And he would get stuck in his scripts, but usually at the place where the character itself was stuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. He was so embedded in his psyche that he couldn't he couldn't go down into an emotional space for him his own self in his own life. Mm-hmm. And when he entered entered into a script where a character couldn't get out of a situation, let's say, he would try to have the character think its way think the way out instead of feel the character's way out, mm-hmm. because that's opposite of his own way of operating in the world. And we worked really hard on helping him with that because it got him stuck every time. He would try to think his way out of things, and it was the same thing that was happening in his own life. He was stuck in his own head, and he, would not, he wasn't able to make decisions, and 
he wasn't able to feel things. And it was showing up in the work as blocked characters. Mm-hmm. And I pointed out to him that, like, this character is not, is, is you. You're just having them do what you do, which is intellectualize things instead of emotionally deal with them. And once we started to get that place where let's go to the emotional space, it was very hard for him because it was naked, it was uncomfortable, and um, he'd always relied on his mind. But he kept writing scripts that were quite intellectualized and didn't emotionally grab people. So there were several things happening there, right? You know, the character, the character situation, how he um, approached it as a writer, but also his own relationship to himself within the world and how he works with his own life choices and and everything else. It all kind of came together in this the, this uh, particular script, and he was dead. He was just locked in, and so we had to. I had to really go after him for the head space part of it. So it's interesting. Is it common that people who work with you end up developing new skills as writers or new skills as creative? professionals because they're being forced to think creatively um in you're calling upon them to actually yeah think in a different way than they have been before about their work and about the the themselves and how they create i mean is is it evolutionary mm-hmm. for them yeah it's 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 all about it's not just the work the work is a is a symptom it's really about you. It's about where you are and how you you intersect with that work. So a lot of times people become um, quite different in terms of their writing and, and in terms of how they see themselves and their relationships and stuff like that because it can't help but come out in the writing. Like for this particular person, he was stuck in every area of his life, unable to move forward, and so of course it showed up in the script. And so um, it was very help- it was very satisfying to work with him because he was so smart and he was also very open. And um, But that's what I mean, like, you know, we get in, in our own way because it's a shadow piece of ourselves that we don't, we, we aren't interacting with. And it helps to have that outside eyes but to point out and say, you know, you just are in your head in your life. That's why it's showing up in the script. Right. You're not going to let your character do something you wouldn't do. And right. Because you, right. Because we have our ways of dealing with things. What, what are what we know? Yeah. So, so solving the writer's block can also let go a lot of other problems. Help release a lot of other um, roadblocks because you're they're all symptomatic of the same kinds of uh, same kinds of thinking then. Yeah, it's all part of the soup. It's all part of the stew. And it's a very complex one to figure out sometimes, you know, you're writing a scene about relationships or a relationship. You got to look at what is your understanding of a relationship and what is what are your feelings about that and um and how are you allowing that to drive the scene or not drive the scene? And is there another way to look at it outside of your own perspe- perspective and your own schema? You'll have a schema about that, too. Relationships are hard or relationships are easy or relationships are like my horrible marriage or whatever it is, you know? Right. 
and or relationships are black and white. And so, but and I often mm-hmm. think that the best screenplays are things that actually are embed what amounts to education in them. You know, the the notion. Mm-hmm. I think everybody that watched the movie Juno, she the, the girl got pregnant, and the way her her parents handled the pregnancy, and the way she at sixteen, the way that she. Um, found yeah. um, a new new set of parents for her child because she couldn't provide a good home for them. It, the, the solution, the thinking that the character went through and that her family went through and that we all went through in following them is what made the mm-hmm. piece exceptional. So mm-hmm. it makes sense to me that that when you help a writer think outside the box, mm-hmm. outside their box, you bring allow them to bring new insights into the characters, which makes the characters more interesting and the characters more important to people that happen to be watching the film. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's a process between the writer and myself. We come up with all kinds of different things because we're working together and brainstorming, but I'm throwing in a lot of, you know, understanding of that person's psychology that mm-hmm. they're not aware of and we then use that as a jumping off point to kind of see where we can, like I said, with the guy who was stuck in his head, where can we open this up? You know, somebody else would have a completely different reaction. When you, One of the things when we were talking, setting up to do this particular um, event, we talked about the fact that a lot of writers that were in the situation try very hard um, to help themselves, so they come up, they read mm-hmm. books, and they they look at self help yeah. solutions, and um, some of them make the situation significantly worse. Can you talk sort of a little bit about why uh, some of the things that you've seen and why those solutions can be so dysfunctional? Well, I mean, I think the books, self help books, are are great and can be really helpful for some things. But the problem is if you're in a, in a block and you feel that bad and you pick up a book that says, just do this, just do that, just do this, just write a few hours a day, you'll be, you know, it's like a simpli- simplicity that, um, or a simple approach to something that's really much more complex than that. And you can feel worse because it's sort of like saying, oh, you want to lose 20 pounds? Well, just go out and run, you know, you'll be fine. Because <laughs> there's much more to, to what's going on with that block, most likely. And so, unfortunately, people can often feel much worse because they feel like, well, I bought this book and I, I did everything that they said and I still can't write. So that means that I'll never work again or I, I've lost it or whatever. And um, those are the kinds of messages that, that you want to stay away from because those books are written for many people, but they're not written for your particular psychology. One of the things you mentioned is the fact that there are a lot of people in Hollywood who are very successful, who are working with bipolar disorder, who are um, who are borderline, who are um, have narcissistic personality disorder, or a lot of narcissistic um, personality traits. Is it the case you think that when people have a serious problem? In particular, that sometimes the fact that they're trying to treat themselves, it's a little bit like them trying to treat themselves for cancer. Like, you don't just, it turns out, sir, <laughs> you've, you're an extremely good writer and you're very creative and, you know, some, you know, you're also, as it turns out, manic depressive. So it's really <laughs> the fact that you cannot at this exact moment choose to work 
for 15 days mm-hmm. straight without sleeping on the screenplay and just get it out the door, mm-hmm. it may be the case that there's an underlying reason for that which goes beyond simple writing. Absolutely. I mean, it's pretty well known that a lot of creative people have bipolar disorder. And one of the reasons a lot of people in the industry have bipolar disorder is because sometimes when you're manic, you can write a lot and it's great. And you can have all kinds of creative ideas that come in. So you're not working in a bank. You're you're working <laughs> on a script and you have to have the ability to access your, your creativity. So bipolar disorder is actually pretty helpful for that sometimes. You need to know how to work with that disorder so that you can get the most out of not your manic highs, but but you can maintain your stability and still be creative. But yeah, it's a really common disorder in the industry. And um, matter of fact, Kay Redfield Jameson's book, Touched by Fire, is really great for that. Talks all about writers and creative people who have bipolar disorder and goes into it much better than I can ever hope to. But um, that's a good one to, to read. Do you hope people in the entertainment industry who are working in high pressure professional environments, like I think, yeah. <laughs> I've done a series of events talking, <laughs> I've done a couple of events talking about narcissistic personality disorder because I do, um, I've, I've, worked in the entertainment industry enough to run a, run into mm-hmm. a few people that yeah they're very it's, it's shockingly i mean the thing is that people with npd in the entertainment industry are very charismatic and they're very mm-hmm. they do get stiff stuff done because they just do and so you end up working with these people and you don't realize right. until you're behind the wall how things are going to go for you so do, is that something you help people with as well in terms of trying yeah, to stay creative while dealing with crazy people Oh, yeah. Navigating the crazy is a daily, if not hourly, activity in my office. Um, it's, a, it's a narcissistic industry. It's uh, an industry that rewards narcissism. So you better know how to deal with that because they're, they're going to be there. Um, so, yeah, I deal with it all the time. Can you talk and, a little bit about specifically what narcissism looks like and how it's different than just being kind of a braggart or just dealing, just being... Like, how does it manifest for the lives and the people around somebody who's got that kind of um, personality disorder or personality type? Well, people with narcissistic personality disorder um, believe in control. Everything is black and white to them. They are special, and only special people can be around them. Um, There's usually... It's a very unpleasant experience, generally, (laughs) Unless you can convince the narcissist that you're at their level, then then you have a chance. Um, are they easy to reason with? Like, are they like, in other words, let's say that you're working for a director um, who's narcissistic, or you're working with an actor who's narcissistic, and, and as a collaborator, because the screenwriter ends uh-huh. up the screen screenwriters work, you know, after even after they finish right. the screenplay, they're still involved in making snips and changes and adjustments. Mm-hmm. So you know, based well, upon the people a, that come in, you know? Right. It's always about a fragile ego, right? So that's mm-hmm. what drives narcissistic personality disorder is someone who is actually very frightened and doesn't feel good about themselves at all. And so if you know that everything they're doing is really bluster and, and cover, and you can kind of see the person underneath it for the scared person that they are actually mm-hmm. without 
letting them know that you know that, mm-hmm. sometimes that kind of empathy can help with them. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's hard to say because there are as many narcissists as, as there are people in the world. You know, I mean, I don't know. Everybody has their own version of it and they're, it's on a continuum. Some people are horrendous and others are just a little bit. But it's an industry full of narcissists because you're you're wanting to do something that very few people get to do and mm-hmm. you're putting your whole person out to do it and you're greatly rewarded if you can. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. And I also I also think that you know it, you you sort of have to do you have to be unafraid of the things that other people are afraid of. And you know Absolutely. And believe that you're you're entitled to do that. Right. <laughs> And that because other people, you're so special, right? Well, and also it's a, the vindictiveness can get a little bit, you know, the, the with some with some narcissists, you make them mad. All of a sudden, they don't they don't just go after you. They go after they don't just fire you. They don't. They, it's like you could work with them for twenty years, but you yeah. make them mad, and then all of a sudden, you know, they just blackball you, so you can't work anywhere, and that's taking care of that for them because they never want to see you again because they you make them feel bad. <laughs> right. Like, you, you've, nar- you've narcissistically wounded them. Right. You've hurt their ego somehow, and that you're going to pay the price for that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you, I think you mentioned borderline at one point. Can you talk just briefly, mm-hmm. just a few seconds, about what a borderline personality is? Um, borderline and narcissists are pretty closely aligned. Um, it's terrible that they call most in, in the DSM five and and mm-hmm. often in material they they generally call women borderlines and mm-hmm. men narcissists. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I buy that, but certainly there is a complexity with the borderline personality disorder, um, you know, where vindictiveness can very much come into it. Um, if they feel they're going to be abandoned, then it can get very ugly. Um, there's a complexity of relationship. Things are black and white. Someone is all good or all bad. Um, there's emotional um drama it's um very intense i think um narcissists the very same thing you know they can be vindictive as well it's probably just not quite the same complexity of emotion it's mm-hmm. more um i'm entitled to do this and so i will mm-hmm. um whereas borderlines there's a little more emotional um complexity for lack of a better word at the moment off the top of my head here mm-hmm. um yeah but both of those disorders are very common um and borderlines and narcissists can both be very very charming people and very bright people mm-hmm. and then there are sneaky borderlines that don't look borderline at first they seem like the nicest person in the world and then it comes out usually under stress or mm-hmm. if you're going to abandon them or they feel they're being abandoned mm-hmm. With, nar- with narcissists, if they feel their ego is being challenged at all, that fragile underlying ego is being wounded at all, you'll get the, fa- the that's when the claws will come out. So, is it ever the case that a writer, um, a writer or a creative professional acquires a creative block because they've had to work from work with some of these people and they've ended up running into trauma because oh yeah there was just no way to win. Oh yeah, and that's another problem with. Uh, certain personality disorders is they make it so you can't win. Um, and yeah, you have to kind of step, be able to step back and know when it's them and, and, 
and when it's you, and sometimes you're stuck in a situation where that's that's who you have to work with. So you got to kind of figure a way around their psych their psychology, mm-hmm. um, just for self preservation. Um, when you when people are trapped with those people and they don't understand that they're those kinds of personalities in the world, or they're not an expert um, because they haven't you know had ten years of training learning how to deal with these people is it, is it the case that when they come to see you you can recognize the symptoms of of trauma of trauma or, or yeah. a, a reaction to trauma from something that they've encountered in the workplace oh absolutely and also a lot of times when you're working with a narcissist or a borderline you are what you'll get is a lot of projection from that person so mm-hmm. You'll feel inadequate. You'll feel uh, less than all of a sudden when you didn't before. You'll feel you can get headaches and nausea. It's all part of like interacting with someone who's quite toxic, mm-hmm. and they they like to project. So that part of themselves that they can't tolerate uh, will be you will feel it, and you'll mm-hmm. feel like there's something wrong with you all of a sudden. You can even, that can even often be a, a problem with writer's block is all of a sudden you can't write and you, you think it's you. Well, it might also just be that you're around someone who's projecting very heavily. And again, that's an unconscious process and we're not always aware of it. When you're counseling somebody and they come into you and they talk about writer's block and you do, you start working with them, you mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to actually talk about their work environment, sort of get familiar. So it's not just mm-hmm. the script that you focus on. You sort of take a wider picture. So that you can actually yeah. figure out if if they're in a toxic work environment or if they've always um, had these big, you know, speed bursts and then they've had periods of depression. So you, as a psychologist, you're w- taking care of the whole person and on a broader perspective than simply focusing on um, the kind of self-help solutions they have in books. You're not you're not just going to yeah. someone's not going to come to you and just say. You know, well, I'm having trouble writing. Well, you need to write 10 minutes more a day or maybe, right. if, you know, take a vacation or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I try to take a really holistic viewpoint because your psyche and your soul is what you use to create. So everything that's around you that impacts you is part of the block. So I'm going to look at your history and what, like I said before, how that's intersecting with the material Who's around you? If you're in a toxic environment, that can be part of the block. That could be a big, big part of it. Are you being traumatized by that? If so, does it mirror something earlier in your life where you had somebody projecting onto you and you weren't aware of it? Mm-hmm. That can happen too because it's all very unconscious. These projections, you know, sometimes we're around someone and we just go, "I feel bad around this person. I don't know why, but they make me feel terrible," even though they're not doing anything that's that outwardly would seem like it, it must be me. Well, yeah, we look at it very holistically. Um, and that that is why being able to work with someone individually versus just reading out of a book is helpful because we can bring in all those different factors and, and sort of, I, I use a whiteboard, so I put everything on the whiteboard and we mm-hmm. sort of go through it all and almost like diagram it out like it's like a football play. Do you think that most people really kind of don't understand, don't believe cause that they have an unconscious mind or that their unconscious mind takes actions without their awareness? Because I find that's something that people don't really don't believe. They think when they go to sleep, they have dreams, and that's unconscious. 
Mm-hmm. And but when they're waking up and they're in their day to day life, the idea that you know maybe today that they didn't go to the gym or that tomorrow mm-hmm. um, they ate healthy, they'll eat healthy, but the day after that on Wednesday, you know, on Wednesday they won't. That they don't understand yeah. that, that that all of these little micro decisions actually do have that there is an unconscious mind that it actually is Absolutely. working all of the time. Oh yeah. Yeah, most most people don't know that. I mean, when they come to therapy and we try to make the unconscious conscious in order to restructure things or what have you, they are often really shocked. And so I'll have people write things down. That's why part of the documentation I gave you, I mm-hmm. there's a schema activation formulation. You can guys can do that on your own, but but that's an, uh, an exercise that will help you to make your unconscious conscious. But I think it's a really good point because people, most people aren't aware of their unconscious. Um, even I have to work on it a lot of times, like, wow, what did I do that for? I have, what's going on? I have to, you know, we don't grow up learning to talk to ourselves mm-hmm. <laughs> and ask ourselves what's happening here. Mm-hmm. We just kind of go about our day or make the choices we, sh- we make, and then we, go, we turn around and go, well, what happened there? Um, I think it was Jung that said the unconscious always shows up as fate. Mm-hmm. I think it's particularly important for writers, actors that are just coming in, new directors, because one of the things I see that happening, and it, it is to me a apparent, very apparently unconscious action, like self sabotage, just mm-hmm. constant, constant, yeah. constant self sabotage. You know, it's, yeah. if you're turning in a screenplay or you're passing around a screenplay, and you know. You, it's not professionally edited. I mean, it doesn't really cost that much to go just send the screenplay to somebody and have them like go through and correct all the spelling mistakes. It's not expensive. It doesn't cost a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of time, and it's easy. It's kind of the easiest checkbox to check, and yet yeah. people won't. And it's like that self sabotage. You don't. You're. Why would you not do that? It's you're doing. You're spending a lot more money, a lot more time doing things that are far more expensive. And mm-hmm. there, people have a hundred kinds of self sabotage that they do, and they don't realize that. There are these unconscious ideas that they're just making manifest over and over and over again. Do you think they need to have professional help? Or, um, will it accelerate how quickly they get on with the work that they came here to do? I think it will help a lot. Um, it's not for everybody. You know, you have to tolerate, you know, wading through your own stuff and looking at it and working with it. And, you know, for some people that's very frustrating. But I think having that outside perspective to help you is always always a good thing but in terms of self-sabotage I see that a lot and usually when I see it it's because there is some kind of underlying schema which is something along the lines of um, I'm not good enough well let me make sure that I'm not good enough by turning in a draft that's not even edited you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying you've reaffirmed your own bias but that's unconscious to you so you act out in a way that's sabotaging. So it is essential to to look at that. Yeah. Or the or the world's not fair. Like people, like the world's yeah. not a fair place. So it doesn't really matter what I do. Or mm-hmm. or or the one one another one of my favorites is um well you know the sort of the starving artist thing, like the mm-hmm. underlying idea that people have to sacrifice for their art. You're not a real artist if you're not sacrificing. Right. Right. Yeah, I try to disavow people that notion real fast <laughs> because it's not going to be helpful very long. Well, especially it's because it's kind it's, of just an idea, just like yeah. a mythic idea. 
but but uh, but they don't realize that they're putting it into practice. You know, they get, that it's not just something that they're thinking in the back of their minds. It's not just something they think once in a while. It's something that they actually every single day make. They turn it. They create that reality around them all the time. You know, mm-hmm. this think that there's. I have a friend who says, and I think it's a very common saying: thoughts become things. And it yeah. is true. The kinds of thinking that you're doing and confused thinking translates into a really awful world because you're constant. It's. I guess we can see it. You know, people who who are extremely racist. You know, they project that they project that difficult that loathing onto the world. And right. their whole and life becomes back. Right. right. It just goes on and on and on, and it's like exactly. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy that continues to eat them. It just makes it so they can never think about anything else except this thing that they don't, you know, that they hate. Do you see people when they come to you for writer's block or for creative blocks? Do you find that that um, you make progress? Do they feel like they make progress swiftly as a rule? Like they, you know, they struggled with something for years, and then they work with you for a few weeks, and they start to see light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I'd like to say that I'm just an amazing miracle worker, <laughs> but <laughs> but I mean, I do have a history of working with Olympic athletes, and so that's my perspective: is how are we going to get you to play it to win instead of playing it not to lose? That's mm-hmm. always my perspective in the room, and so. I don't like to spend time on what isn't working. I want to get you forward on what will work. So I've had some really good success with people, you know, and it's always a fit. So, you know, I'm quite straightforward. I don't mince words. I get right in it. And and, and that has to be something that works for people. But most of the time, they make good progress within the first six weeks or so, for sure. Mm-hmm. And is it the case that if somebody's not working, if it's not working out well for them, if you're not seeing them make, move forward, will you do you help do you provide them with referrals to other people that they think oh, yeah. um, might be a better fit? Oh yeah, mhm, mhm, absolutely. And then I'm not here oh, to take the money. I'm here to help you. And if I can't help you, then I'm not gonna, you know, keep it stringing it along. And if you run into people who who have um, things like bipolar disease or they have diseases that look like mental illness. I mean, I can't imagine mm-hmm. I can't imagine that you don't run into people who are um have been working for a long time in the industry and they're starting to see signs of of mental illness related to to growing older because that's all I think yeah. for a lot of writers that's our worst fear is the idea that, you know, when I'm 60 or I'm 65 or I'm 70 I'll start showing signs of you know, mm-hmm. how will I work then? And so Yeah. Yeah, all that stuff gets talked about, and, you know, it's therapy, but it's also working through the block. So, you know, um, I had a a really interesting woman client who wasn't able to write for years and years, and she believed that she was just so blocked that she couldn't write. And I said, well, you're not blocked, you're depressed. There's a big difference. Mm -hmm. And so we had to work on her depression and lifting that depression before she could really even start to write again. And and she went on and did really well and wrote four scripts right away, right after that. Really? Because, yeah, because we rephrased, I helped her understand that, you know, she had a clinical depression and that was impacting her ability to write. And it wasn't because she couldn't write. It was because she just was depressed. So we had to work on that. And and once we got it going, we looked at the underlying reasons for the depression and we got that moving um, she did much, much better, you know. And so she had really, four so scripts right away. 
So it really yeah. is a holistic, uh, taking a holistic pro- approach actually solves the problem more quickly because you're not just, yeah. you're, you're not deciding what the illness is and then treating it. You're, you're diagnosing the illness and then treating it. Yeah. I mean, it is a complex thing. Like I said, like, you know, many things could be underneath that block. And so with somebody who has experience, education, and training, it really helps. Just picking up a book, a book's not going to tell you, hey, actually you have bipolar disorder, and right now you're in a bipolar depression, um, which is heavier than a regular depression. That's why you can't write. That's part of it. Do you think it makes it makes a difference that you work with creative professionals, that you've really concentrated your practice specifically on working with creative professionals instead of... Um, being a counselor who specializes, who is not so specialized. I mean, there's a lot of marriage and family therapists, and I suspect many of them may be able to provide treatment for depression and so forth. But the fact mm-hmm. that you're working with some, you specifically work with creative professionals who are writers or who are working in the entertainment industry and who have to be creative every single day. Do you think that the specialization um, is important to being able to provide solutions more quickly? I think so, because you have to understand the world. This is a world unlike any other. I mean, you're not working in a bank. You're not working, you know, there are factors and there are there is a world that that is absolutely part of the work. And if you don't understand it, then you, you're going to miss a lot of nuances. And also just I've ha- I have the creative background. I've done it all my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a na- I think it is very important. And also I went back and got my Ph.D. and did a lot of work with Jungian studies, which mm-hmm. looks at things in a very different way. Um, and I think that's helped a lot. I think so, too. I think that um, there's, a lot, there's a reason why a lot of um, creative professionals are very drawn to Jung. It relies upon the unconscious. It replies, it relies upon um, valuing the unconscious mind and seeing that as a, a source of stories and characters. You know, if you think about Harper Lee and you think about Atticus Finch, I think there's a lot of people in the world who feel like Atticus Finch is as real as any person, you know, they've ever heard about on TV but never met. And I think the same is true for Big Brother. How many times have you heard people in a political conversation talking about Big Brother, which was... a <laughs> which came from a book, right? <laughs> well, I mean, all of those concepts from classic mythology, you know, Jung worked with all of the mm-hmm. the hero's journey. That's Joseph Campbell. That came from Jung. And there's a lot of um, things about transformation and um, le- levels of soul, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word. Mm-hmm. But um, being able to interact with your own unconscious is, is very Jungian and really helpful for writers and I, I always say you know try to read it's hard to read Jung because he's hard to understand mm-hmm. um, I mean I went through a whole PhD program I'm still a little confused <laughs> but there are there are some things that I got out uh, I can figure out but uh well I also think yeah. it's, the other I think a thing that that is important to to recognize about Jung is that he worked for many 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 years and I'm not I'm not entirely sure English was his first language. So No, it wasn't. No. It wasn't. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. So I I too have read Jung and gone, what? <laughs> and also his yeah. sentences. No, it's way out. Yeah. yeah. His sentences don't to always head around it. Yeah, his sentences seem to have sometimes multiple <laughs> multiple subjects, you know. Like, what did we just talk about? <laughs> but it's uh, what I but I do think it's 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 interesting that we are always um that that 
writers are drawn to him. They will read him. And I think it has to do with the fact that we know there's a sense that there's something there's something metaphysical well, about the process of writing. It's something that's otherworldly about yeah. it. Absolutely. And things like the collective unconscious, you know, we all have similar in all and why he was so drawn to myth is because there are those themes that run throughout cultures that we as human beings always are drawn to and mm-hmm. form the great basis of, of of stories and understanding of ourselves in the world. And, and that's all part of his work of what he brought to psychology. And so I think, you know, having embedded myself in that kind of um, training really does help with working with writers and, and looking at maybe from a very almost mystical perspective at some times when it's, when it's necessary. I'll apply CBT, like this schema stuff, that's mm-hmm. all CBT. That's all CBT. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's making use of CBT with an underpinning that's not simple. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's I think it's perfect. That's yeah. a perfect description. One of the people listening on the call says something I'm sure that you help people with, which is mm-hmm. my problem is not the writing; it's getting the writing into the right hands. I've been paralyzed regarding this step. For, for example, finding and getting an agent. My my scripts just sit there gathering dust. So is that the kind of thing you help people with as well? The the fear of the fear of diving into the process of of uh, entering the industry professionally. Yeah, I mean, I would do that. But I would look at that the same way as we've been talking about the scripts themselves. I would say, you know, if if you've gotten it out there and you can't get anywhere, are you giving up? Are you telling yourself you'll never make it? What's the point? Or do you get up and say, I'm going to try another day. I'm going to try another way. I'm going to I'm going to do something else with this. Because of course, rejection over time, it's very very debilitating. But you you have to work with what you're telling yourself about it. Um, that's the that's your control in the situation because you can't control their response. You can only control your response to that that right. situation. Right. Yeah. And also, if if you're kind of counting yourself out by not sending yeah. stuff out to be to go to an agent, then you're deciding it's not good enough. Nobody's even el- nobody else has even had the chance to say it's not good enough. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and there's a lot of people in the world, so you'd have to take at least 50% of them would have to say it was not good enough before you could even take that as an authoritative opinion. Right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So somebody else asks something related, which is how do you deal with criticism of your writing? If, even even though some people say they like it, if, if a lot of people are saying that they don't like your work, how do you, can you handle the discourage, discouragement or the, the lack of belief in your own abilities? Yeah, because it goes to, it speaks to a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. First of all, you've done work, and you're getting feedback that people don't like it, and some people do like it. So what is your, what do you believe about that? Do you take the people who don't like it and say, well, what is it that you don't like about it, and see if there's something you can concretely do? Or do you just take that as gospel and fold, you know? Mm -hmm. If, If you have, you have to say, where's my control in this situation. I I can't write from a place of somebody else thinks this about my writing. You'll always be blocked. It'll always be frustrating. And there's always going to be someone who doesn't like what you write. It's just reality. You really have to find a way to determine how you're going to assess the feedback that you get to determine what you're going to implement in your work and what you're going to choose not to implement in your work. Yeah. 
Yeah, and how much you're going to let other people's opinions stop you. And that's so, your own decision. So somebody else asked the question, which two questions, which I think are interesting, which is, she says, I'm obsessed by grammar and correcting grammar and punctuation marks, even in text. I also also email basically anything I write, even though it takes extra time. Is that strange mm-hmm. or odd? And No, I think it sounds like you want to be, do you have, is there more to that question? I think she might be saying it feels to her somewhat OCD-ish, right? Uh-huh. The fact that she's a, like, how many times am I going to check the door to make sure that the door right. is locked? Right. How many times am I going to check this email for grammar or obsess over, if I'm just sending it, you know, something to to a person that I know and I've checked it over once for mistakes because I want to represent myself well, but now I'm afraid to let it go because what if what if there's a mistake I haven't seen yet? So every every email takes, you know, 15 times as long to send because I'm afraid of making that mistake. You're telling yourself something that, like, along the lines of, if I'm not perfect, I can't send anything out. It has to be perfect. Right. And if it's not perfect, I'm, I've failed. Or there's some kind of something you're telling yourself about that. And that's mm-hmm. what's stopping you is the idea that unless it's perfect, you're not good enough. If nobody's complained about an right. email that's gone out to them and you've never seen it have any impact on them, whether or not you know this phrasing or that phrasing was better, then... Mm-hmm. It's it's different with a screenplay because it's representing you all over the place, and because right. because people so obsessing about the grammar and making sure that it's letter perfect is one, is a different situation because that is a work that's supposed to be entirely finished. It's a different thing when it's an email you're just sending out to people, and if you're sending it to agents or managers, maybe so. But if you're emailing somebody that you've worked with twenty two thousand times before. And you can't let it go after without thirty minutes of anal- and analysis to make sure, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's like how well, obsessed again, are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you want to? It, it is obsessive, but it, it, it's 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 obsessive because you've got some thought process going on there that says it must be absolutely perfect, or else this person will think badly of me, or I won't make it, or the world will fall apart. Whatever it is that you're you've got going on in terms of that particular thought. Well, not to mention the fact that if it is the case that it has to be letter perfect, then it's not a question. It's not. A, it's not something that calls for anxiety. It's ca- something that calls for a solution. Find right. a solution that makes it so you can feel confident that it's gone out letter perfect, so you don't have to right. think about this anymore. Right. right. That's how you know it's not about that. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Or so you would find a solution to it. You'd get somebody else to read it. And double check it, and you, you, you know, yeah. So that's not, yeah. It's the anxiety part. If it, there's anxiety yeah. about it, that starts to be a little on the creepy side. Grammar should not cause anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it does. it does. I know, though. I know it does, but it shouldn't, though. Okay. I'm a songwriter and musical performer, and my producer, co-writer, bandmate, was my husband of 10 years who left me nine months ago. He's very talented and more successful and advanced than, than I am as a musician. And I'm very mm-hmm. triggered by my apartment because he left me there and by the fact that it was such a big part of my creative process, even though I had a solo career before him. How can I change mm-hmm. my attitude about my creative process without him and my and in my apartment? Before I met him, I had a lot more confidence. But now I'm having mm-hmm. trouble making myself sit down and write in my apartment and also performing on my own. I have a lot of feelings of not being good enough without him, but I'm suffering not so much being able to, suffering so much, not being able to write, produce, 
music and perform on my own. I know I'm grieving and I've gotten some therapy about it, but I want to get back into the world in the meantime because I think it will help me heal and feel more confident. My songwriting has always been something that I trusted until now. Um, And the second question, which is related, you mentioned that many people are mean and brutal during their process, and Dr. Royce says to learn more healthy ways to motivate themselves. What are more healthy ways to create? And where does creativity come from? What a great set of questions. Great questions. Awesome. Yeah. How do you talk to yourself about your songwriting? Do you write a little bit and then say, well, that's horrible, and just stop? That's being brutal to yourself. You have to learn new ways of speaking to yourself. I like that piece. That felt good to me. It may not be perfect yet, but I I feel like there's something there. Let me keep going. Those kinds of words that you need to say to yourself as you're creating. I think you're probably in, as you said, you're in a grieving process. And a lot of times it can feel like things have just shut down. But the greatest gold is in the greatest pain. And if you can let yourself access it, and I'm sure you can because you're a musician, and musicians are great at this, and and really go there. There might be a piece of it you just don't want to experience yet. I think if you allow yourself to experience that pain, it will unlock whatever's stopping you. Um, Without knowing your whole history, it's hard for me to say that. You're working with somebody, and I'm glad you're working through the grief. But... um, the fact that you're in the apartment with him that you shared with him is very significant. You know, all the memories are there. All the feelings are there. It's energetically, he's probably still there. And, you know, you may not have let go of him yet. And until you do, um, you got to say, let me look at the relationship differently. Let me see if there's another way into my work. And think about the work and the relationship a new way. Um, again, without having you in front of me, I couldn't, you know, kind of work that through. But um, try to forgive yourself for whatever happened in that relationship and try to forgive yourself right now and, and gently help yourself move forward. She sent a follow-up question saying that she's considering trying to work with him again and asking if she, if that would be, you know, generally speaking, unhealthy? It's hard to say generally speaking because mm-hmm. I don't know the nature of your relationship or what, why you broke up. Um, as just a creative energy, if you worked well together and you really want to work together just for that, I don't see a big problem. But if you're doing it on some unconscious level because you want to be near him or you want to get back together with him, then you're kind of muddying the waters. That's why I'm thinking maybe there's a piece you just don't want to let go yet. Mm-hmm. Um, because to find your own voice as your own songwriter, you kind of need to let that go. So someone else asks, um, that says that there's, she's a screenwriter and her blocks mm-hmm. are mostly in the endings. And do you, mm. is that something you've seen before where people have trouble yeah. actually finding the ending of um, mm. pieces? She says, I've started many projects in many different genres but never finished since I left school. And none of the therapists that I've tried to work with have been able to answer this question. Well, okay, so what I would do is I would look at endings in your own life. 
was there were there people that left you that you didn't want to leave and it was unresolved i know that sounds kind of corny but that's kind of the way i would work with you um I would explore the nature of endings in your life. Why do you want to leave things undone all the time? Is it because you're avoiding pain? Is it because you don't want to let go of something that um, gives you purpose? There's a million different possibilities to that answer. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I had a lot of different answers to that question. But around the issue and the theme of endings in your life, that's what you need to look at. Mm-hmm. Is there any other topics that we didn't address that we should have um, we should have talked about today? Sort of run through the questions that uh, we had, yeah. but yeah, I can't think of any. Um, like I said, it's a complicated matter, and you know, a block does not mean that you're not a creative person or that you don't have it anymore, or that there's something wrong with you. There's there are a lot of layers to it. You got to kind of find your way through it with someone who knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, before you give yourself the message that you can't write or you're not good enough. And isn't it part of the decision deciding, part of the process of reaching out to a therapist, one of the valuable steps is saying, I am worth it. I mean, that's the first indication yeah. you give to yourself that my work is, my work is worth it that, or that I'm worth it. Um, yeah, I'm solving this problem. It. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to fight for it. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it to win. I'm not going to sit here and play it not to lose. Right. And also the fact, and I think it, the other thing we talked about today was, was interesting is when you said that working through working through um, a writer's block can also transition and frequently does transition into removing blocks across, um, out of the rest of your life. The, the thinking that's giving you the writer's block is probably the same thinking that's blocking you on a, on a number of fronts. Like the guy you talked about that had relationship, had you know, intellectualized mm-hmm. everything, turned everything into, mm-hmm. and we, I, like we all know people that intellectualize everything. It's not about how people feel. It's about doing the rational thing and doing the right thing. And it's like, yeah, I understand the rational thing and the right thing. It doesn't feel right and I don't want to do it. That's, <laughs> that's sort of right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the fact that, that him learning how to solve that problem for his screenplay pull depends out on the rest of his life as well so that they could he could move forward on those fronts as well so it's right it's, which i think isn't it funny how creative people they might you know they might be facing divorce they might be you know there's a million things that might be happening to them that are all really torturous they might have a horrible relationship with their mother or father or or children or whatever but you know the thing that they'll go save the reason that they'll go into therapy is because they want to be able to write right <laughs> Right. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I'm I say it right away, and they sort of look at me, sort of tweak, like, "How did you figure that out?" Well, <laughs> Let me guess. You, you you write who you are and what yeah, you are. So you're having trouble writing romantic relationships. How are they working out in real life, too? <laughs> right. <laughs> it sounds super obvious, but when you're in the middle of it, you just don't see it. <laughs> So, <laughs> the story, the script about your father is really difficult. The script about a man, um, have you know, confronting the death of his father, difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did you yeah. handle that? Right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. It's still, it's it, creative people are a trip. So, um, yeah. the what I'd like to do is, if you could, um, can people reach out to you if they want to um, talk about sure. working with you going forward? Uh huh. 
I'd love to hear from people. So my website is theindustrytherapist.com. And um, you can contact me through there. And I'm more than happy to talk to people. And I'm open to working with the group. Mm-hmm. The group needs my help or anything like that. I love getting people to where they want to go. There are scripts out there that exist because we work them through. And I'm very proud of that. So if I can help in any way, I'm happy to do so. Well, it's been an honor to talk with you. And what I'm going to do is take well, this um, take this um, audio recording and I'll edit it up and I'll make it available um, to you um, to listen to, and then when, if you say it's okay, I'll make it available to the people who couldn't join us on the call today or to people who are on the call who'd like to have mm-hmm. be able to listen to it again. And then okay. um, I'll also make it available so you can um, give it to people as well if you're inclined. Okay, great. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you're you so much. You're a wonderful much. person. I can't tell you. I'm just really, really, really <laughs> proud to have had an opportunity to interview you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Have, right. a, have, a great, have a great day, everybody. You too. Enjoy the rain. <laughs> okay, I will. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.